if I don't say a lot, it means I don't know what it is. But I, I usually have a good idea. So, um, yeah, anyway, uh, now listen, thanks for coming along. So I'm talking to Niall Norton, who is a pretty incredible CV. I wrote, I took a copy of all the awards he's won. So Niall is most best well known for being um, CEO of OpenNet. And uh, that was acquired by Amdocs. We'll talk a bit about that. Um, but I was, I see like there's 10 different awards you won, like everything, Ernst & Young Entrepreneur, Silicon Valley 50, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't get any impression of a, of a, a big head off yet. No, I'll just talk to you there. So thanks again, as I say, um, you started out as an accountant. It was actually, yeah, I, I, I did my training in a smaller firm, uh, a place called Bastow Charlton. And then I moved into Deloitte oh, and did in corporate finance for a while. And then I, between my 20s and my 30s, my ambition was go out and work in lots of different industries because I wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do and get some experience because I kind of liked the general management aspect of, of things. Um, and it seemed like, you know, I didn't have to set my career in cement mm -hmm. at that point in time in terms of industries. But it was through Deloitte. Uh, I ended up working in the grain industry, in the coal industry, in the metal industry, and 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 financial services and various things. And I ended up uh, then working for a while in the telecom regulator's office on competition law issues and raising mm. uh, raising money for um, to fund the telco uh, regulator and so on. Uh, and it was really interesting. But a guy I had done some work for um, a few years previously. In, in in the food industry uh, was a guy called John O'Rourke. He was one of the big figures in my life. Um, John was uh, CFO with uh, a, a new company that had started called Digifone, yeah, which was well, well. an operator in, in, in <laughs> Ireland. And he said, look, I, you know, we've just started off. I'm putting together a finance team. I liked working with you. Come on board. So I said, hmm, that sounds like a good thing to me. Um, so I came into Digifone. We got acquired by BT. We did an IPO into uh, O2 Group, and through that kind of process, I had worked my way up to CFO in O2 in Ireland, um, more or less up until the time the Telefonica were lining up to buy O2, mm -hmm. uh, at which point in time I, I, I left because my, I didn't want my career to be in finance. At that stage, I wanted more general management. Um, and the CEO of Digifone had been a guy called Barry Maloney, and I was quite close with Barry, and so I reached out to him, say, "Please give me some advice." He said, "Well, if you're if you're interested in changing role, um, there's a, a couple of portfolio companies because Barry was then heavily into venture capital. Uh, one of these companies might be interesting." I met Joe Hogan, who was CTO and founder in OpenNet. Joe and I hit it off pretty much straight away from the point of view of sense of humor and and, and ambition. Um, so I joined a CFO in, in OpenNet in 2004. And then in 2006, I uh, got the CEO ta tap. And uh, the rest is kind of history, if you know what I mean, or at least the history of OpenNet at that point. Yeah. And for people who mightn't be aware of it, so OpenNet is probably certainly one of the top three indigenous Irish software companies that were developed. And as we are saying, they're, they're acquired by Amdocs. Um, but what, how big was OpenNet? And what was it? What was the product and markets that you served? Yeah, so OpenNet was, uh, I gotta say, pre-acquisition, we would have had about 
800 people in Europe, uh, the Far East, and, and, and in the US, um, about 200 people in Ireland, uh, about 200 people in Malaysia, um, and others then in the US. And it, largely wherever the larger customers were, we tended to have uh, you know, a center of operations for support and, and so on. Um, turnover was about $120 million uh, a year. Uh, we were profitable, we were generating cash. Um, we had very understanding shareholders because as soon as we started making profits, I immediately tried <laughs> to reinvest them into things that Joe wanted to build because we were in a very fortunate place because we had got the customer relationships right in some very big customers, which were excellent references. But we were, uh, compared to the guys we were competing against, we were a pygmy. We mm. were very much a, uh, a sliver of the solutions that Telco would require. Um, trying to compete in an environment where, you know, typically the very large guys, the Ericsson's, the Nokia's, the Huawei's, even the Amdox's were selling a broader portfolio. So our products needed to be that much better mm. or have a much better business case. So we needed to have a, uh, a trust relationship with the operators, which would allow them forgive themselves mm. for giving a company, uh, you know, a smaller yeah. company, uh, the, the the opportunities. Um, but it was providing effectively uh, middleware software into the telcos. So connecting the billing system through to the the network uh, physical physical assets, making decisions as to how to allocate resources for a Skype call or a Zoom call um, so that you could actually manage the network without pulling it over and being able to bill for it in real time or advise the customer how much something would cost. So a lot of interactive real-time decision-making mm. um, decisions between you know big billing systems, which were typically post-event, yeah. and the network equipment, which was great at doing what it did, but it didn't have necessarily the intelligence of the the full picture so we were filling that gap in the middle right yeah i know it's it's a it's a huge area i want having uh, sold to mobile operators uh i know how conservative they are um and i'm just would ask you how did you manage to sell to the bigger customers you have particularly the us and let me just say there's uh there's a, f a friend of mine who was very successful in america uh, who started a, a company that was um very successful sold sold on a few times and at one stage i think he employed about 600 people and i was talking to him about the difficulty of selling to mobile operators and he just said even even we are minnows you know at, at 600 people and and he had that uh, he had the nine he sold essentially the nine the nine one uh software that you know was mandated oh, yeah. FCC. so it was a pretty critical piece of infrastructure but I just say that as an example. You're you're in a you're in a different country, you're a different culture, and yet you won some of the big American operators. How did you do that? Yeah, it's a, it's a combination of things. I mean, it starts off with you've got to have a product that is very good. I mean, that goes without saying, but it's it's got to have more than just what the big guys can do. Um, and because we were a smaller company, a smaller portfolio we could be much more specialized in that way. So typically our product would have features not otherwise available for another 12 months from the bigger guys. Um, the second thing is you, you needed to have relationships with the, uh, with the people because when they bought from you, they were putting their career on the line yeah. by not buying from the big guys. 
and you needed to have positioning of the product. You, you needed to have uh, a, a lot of less on marketing, more on product marketing, if I can put it to you like that. Um, and that was very much a, um, you know, very much around the kind of relationships. Like we didn't pretend to be more than we were. Mm-hmm. We came in to do a specific job. We listened a lot to what were the resistance points going to be on buying. And honestly, being from Ireland was a big, big help in the US because um, when the financial services crash happened in 2008 and the Wall Street Journal was saying that Ireland was a banana republic, (laughs) the IDA did a fantastic job. President McAleese at the time did a fantastic job persuading the American market particularly that this was not the case and that, you know, everything was going to be fine. And we, that was a big growth spurt for us, ironically, um, because we could come in and tell our story and we were able to get a lot of, you know, state support from a messaging perspective. Um, But it takes years. Mm -hmm. You have to be proven. Um, We were able to integrate our software seamlessly into other people's software. Um, so the, the, these, these pain points, these barriers to adoption, we isolated or analyzed the market. We isolated as many of these things as we could, and we did away with them. Right. And then we had a business case. We had a low risk purchase decision and we had advantages to the business. Um, and it, you know, when you win one, the next one is a little bit easier to win because nobody wants to be first. Um, and, uh, so from that perspective, the technology innovation was the door opener. The business case was the enabler, uh, and the relationship closed the deal for us. So mm. we set up support organization in the U.S. We set up a support organization in South America. We set one up in Malaysia, um, so that people could, you know, could yeah. open that for a small company became a, you know, twenty five percent of the employees were Irish, even though it was an Irish company, because we needed to have people. Uh, who were comfortable with the other people they were dealing with. So yeah, while yeah. I was in Dublin, you know, the head of sales for the Americas was in, uh, you know, um, Chicago, uh, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, yeah, no, that's, that's really... Than we were. Yeah, no, that's what's interesting, Niall, is uh, how you sort of... Um, yeah, so we made a... We had a bit of a joke we were talking earlier. I said, um, don't want me saying you, you started out as an accountant. I started out as an engineer being... The so-called right-brain thinkers, you know, and that doesn't, that's, just let me say as an engineer, is that not a lot of engineers are really good managers because they just don't have that instinct for people. However, I I do get a really strong uh, sense uh, that you're a good people manager. Um, you know, was did that develop naturally? Is that your personality? How important was that in developing the culture and the, the growth mindset in, in Open Air? Yeah, I, I think Sorry, it is. I mean, in the end, it's a people business. It's 90% of the OPEX was was payroll related. In OpenAid, we had a, a, a uniquely good opportunity because Joe Hogan, who was the founder of CTO, he and I, from the get-go, had a shared vision to become a global business. Um, a lot of the technology where I would have very little credibility, I didn't pretend to have credibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was able to bring some discipline to the metrics on how we were doing things and challenge the business case for why we would build things. 
but I didn't have a, I didn't make the mistake of falling in to have a, a technology opinion. Um, and what we did was we were able to build a team over time um, that were excellent at their jobs. But again, we were kind of positioning it as we were going to be multinational. We were going to be multicultural. Um, if you, you know, if, 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 if you weren't a good fit with the ethos of the business, we were strong on values. Values driven more than anything else. Um, so we were lean on, lean on, 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 on kind of nice sounding, meaningless words, uh, and big on more pragmatic, pragmatic kind of approach to, um, you know, growth for us was 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 simply if you were curious, if you were ambitious, you would do well in 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 in, in an open ed environment. If you were looking for safety, security. <laughs> politics of the big corporation you didn't last long at all yeah and we 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 curated a garden of people um Mm. you know who who bought into that and we were very lucky like we spent a lot of time on things like culture the values of the business walking the values of the business i spent a lot of time actually meeting our people Mm. um and mostly for the most part and again it comes back to Maybe an Irish perspective, uh, you know, I didn't, I, 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 I really don't buy into. I have a car parking space in the car park. There was no car parking spaces for anyone in the car park. Mm. You showed up, you got a car parking space. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Joe and I ate lunch in the same place as everyone else did. You know, there was none of that us and them stuff, which is the death sentence. Because I'd seen other, I'd worked in other organisations, um, and on my journeys through my career. I always learned something. Either it was good, yeah. a lesson that was good, or a lesson that was bad. Um, but you know, so I, I, what allowed OpenNet survive the dark nights because there were dark nights as well as sunny days um, was an unshakable ambition, an unshakable belief that we could do it, yeah. um, and a real kind of hunger but humble, uh, hungry but humble, the kind of approach. Mm. Um, but you're right. I mean, for me, I spent a huge amount of my time on that side of things. I mean, I did some commercial work, although I had better people than me uh, mm. involved in that. Um, I spent a lot of time on people, on HR, on continuously looking at training and retraining and and and, and trying to empathize with the employees. How do they get a career path? Well, Have they got something solid? At a time when Lots of other companies were saying, eh, employees don't really value having healthcare. We made sure they had healthcare, they had pensions, and all that kind of carry on because uh, a lot of employees, a lot of them were a lot younger than me, <laughs> probably wouldn't have seen it as important. But if your ambition is to be there in 20 years' time, and ours yeah. was, yeah, yeah. that would become important. So we made some long term investments in that sense. And a lot of transparency and a lot of absence of BS mm. were. were, yeah. were Thing. Yeah, well, actually, like I do remember, like the reputation that OpenNet had um, uh, as being a very deep tech, competent um, a company. You know, I remember I had this ethos of it. I could, even though I wasn't, didn't work for it, I had this sense that this is the respect the company had because of its um, probably exactly what you're just talking about there. You know, developed that customer focus, but very competent um, delivery. You know, I used the organization structure to shape the culture, not the other way around. So 
Um, our engineers who develop products met customers on an ongoing basis, attended customer calls, mm. support and engineering and the delivery services organization. They were all part of one unit. Mm. They all had to work together. And that made the engineers think about the customer and how the customer would use a product. It made the services guys think about the engineers who were being asked to develop a million different features when there was no real sense to it. And we put compensation plans around the delivery services people and the salespeople, which were driven off the profitability of engagements, not the revenue. Mm. And it, those, you know, to the extent that I kind of sat in my little ivory tower sometimes, I actually thought a lot about those things that would change behaviors. And when people started working together, it's like a Catherine wheel. It just gets faster and faster. And you get that kind of circle of virtue breaking out. We didn't get it right all the time, but we were very clear. We were an engineering company. We mm -hmm. built products. Um, the deployment of the products, we did it excellently so the customer would feel happy and get value out of it. And, you know, that simple, simple view of who we were, yeah. uh, we didn't have a massive portfolio of a thousand products deployed once everywhere. We had some mainstream products. And we worked closely with the universities here, uh, DCU, UCD, Trinity. Uh, with the MBA programs, we got people who were, you know, wanted to learn about the marketing or could give us some help. We spent a lot of with a lot of time with the technology guys. We ended up sponsoring the AirSat uh, satellite really? thing. With, with <laughs> because, but a lot of it was to market ourselves. We had anything like a Google budget, or yeah, a, a, yeah. but we were able to get in with. The right kind of people um, who would understand that we had, you know, the tech we were working on was, you know, first generation mm. ground floor deep tech stuff. So we were working on the iPhone before the iPhone was launched. We were mm. working, you know, on the charging to make it work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were on the iPad before the iPad became a thing. We were working on the cloud before the cloud was really popular, largely on the grounds that we we had to be ahead. Right, right. The, the mainstream. Yeah, that's country. the culture you're talking about there. That you, yeah. your, the mindset was, we're we're going to go out there first, and yeah, we don't know if it's going to work out commercially right now, but yeah, we're we're going to be there. Yeah, and the important thing was not making too many mistakes. <laughs> but uh, there were processes we had in place around that too, which uh, some of it was customer led, and you know, mm. talking to customers and and inviting them to be an advisory boards. Some of it was down to, you know, we had a strong product management function, which worked with the R&D guys, looked at the outside market and looked at the competition. We had monthly meetings on, well, what are we investing in now? And we, we had a very agile development capability. We could swap from one thing to another within weeks mm. um, and so on. And we had shareholders who were very supportive. They, they, I think they thought that Joe and I and the team were kind of mad sometimes, but they, uh, <laughs> they were, uh, they were very supportive, you know. Very good, very good. And now that you've uh, you've taken the big step to move away from the big corporate environment, I'm sure it was, I won't say this is this is not a reflection. I'm sure there was a certain amount of comfort in that big environment, in the sense of you know the paycheck comes in every month, um, but you're you're looking to do something else. So maybe tell us about what, what you're thinking of doing now. Yeah. The kind of more recent history 
is is for me is very interesting because I we competed with Amdocs for years. We even had a lawsuit with them for years. Um, but we our biggest customers in OpenNet were Amdocs's biggest customers, although they were an order of magnitude bigger than us. But nonetheless, we you know we knew Amdocs pretty well. When we got acquired, it was a very logical thing. But I knew they'd love the R and D guys. I knew they'd love the you know the salespeople. They'd love Joe and everybody else. But as a CEO, you're the fifth wheel, uh, you know, post-acquisition. Sure, sure. Um, but in that environment, in, in fairness to Amdocs, I, I, I was given a phenomenal opportunity to start a new business inside Amdocs, which I was glad to work on and set up and get going. And that's that's that went very, very well. But my longer-term ambition was not to be in a big corporation um I much prefer the kind of more adrenaline rush of, you know, mm. growth and invent stuff and so on and so forth. Um, working with teams and culture and everything else. And 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 that is not necessarily always, well, it's, it's generally not possible in a bigger company that has to have different governance and processes because of the size of the scale. OpenNet was, you know, round numbers, OpenNet was a thousand people. Mm. Amdocs is 34,000 people. And, you know, you need to do things differently. So uh, love the experience, very grateful for the opportunities, uh, but wanted to also get involved more in kind of mentoring, advising, dare I say, teaching, but certainly sharing some of the, the, the kind of experiences that I would have had mm-hmm. and applying it maybe in new business models or even new industries, because I've always enjoyed it um, very, very much. And, I'm fortunate enough to be that place where I can give that a, a go now. So I put together a, a company called Clever Communications, which is effectively my my consulting vehicle, if I can call right. it that. Very early stage stuff. Got a couple of uh, prospects that I'm already working with. Um, not entirely sure I know where it's going to go. Um, <laughs> I, I much prefer to be deep with a small number of people, right? Thin with a very wider pool. So. It, it's not necessarily a non-exec right. vehicle, more uh, more involved. Okay, brilliant. And uh, people can contact you uh, via LinkedIn or, or... Yeah, LinkedIn is probably the best thing. Okay, okay. So, yeah, that's, if anyone thinks Noel might be interested in their project, drop them a line and um, I'm sure you can have a chat. Um, yeah, the big, the big thing for me, I guess, that I'd be interested in, Pat, is... Um, there's U.S. businesses want to come to Europe, mm. and I'd like to work with those guys on setting it up and getting the culture piece right. There's Irish businesses or European businesses that want to go either east or west, where I can help with those things. But as much as anything else, you kind of need a management team that's more interested in winning purchase orders than they are necessarily, you know, the industry accolades. Um, and building a team and a culture like it, it's it never down to one person. Mm-hmm. It's down to what kind of business do you want to run? How clever is your distribution strategy? You know, have you got shareholder support? Those things, I I love that. Absolutely right. love it. Right. Yeah. No. It sounds sounds like you're gonna. We might be talking in five years, and you're doing something else <laughs> that's going to go IPO. No, you know. Um, <laughs> so, like in all these uh, situations, that uh, you know, obviously your own. Um, Ability to relax and enjoy life. What do you what do you do for relaxation or pastimes or what do you do? Uh, 
drive my wife crazy, Pat. Um, <laughs> I, uh, in terms of one of the things that I've done recently is 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 been looking at this second half of my life. How do I put more balance in? Because twenty years ago. Um, I could rely on muscle to get me through stuff. You know, you get in an airplane, you sleep two hours, you go in and do presentations. Sure. Uh, like a, it's like a rugby player. You know, you start off and you're very quick. Later in your career, you've got to be very devious uh, <laughs> in order to survive. And, and to an extent, uh, I do want to put more, and I'm in the act of trying to put more emphasis into uh, a, a fuller portfolio of health and exercise and all that kind of jazz i always enjoy walking i enjoy walking and listening to, to audiobooks um i do a bit of fishing i do a bit occasionally I do a bit of clay pigeon shooting oh, really? um, yeah. i enjoy that kind of stuff but it's not i don't have a passion for golf or i don't have a passion for tennis i'm too lazy to, to be uh, good at it I, I, there's two things i do uh Niall. I, I listen to audiobooks when I walk, I mean, it's fantastic. I've listened to 70 books, I think, in the last two years. Yeah. And and also, I uh, I do plays. Uh, so it's, it's there's sort of, a, there's something you can do on your own time when yeah. you need to do it. You don't have to, as maybe going back to what we started about, maybe it's a bit uh, solitary, but, you know, I do, I'm sure you're you're a very social person too. I'm sure you have other ways of, of socializing. Yeah, I, 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 I do enjoy the socializing part for sure. I mean, I was never a particularly natural networker in the sense of, you know, I like people generally. And that just comes through in you want to stay in touch with people, you have a good laugh, you, you broker a bit of gossip every now and then, and that's <laughs> good fun, you know. I do believe strongly in a kind of culture of service. So I, I kind of, if you're fortunate enough to be able to help other people out, you should. If you're fortunate enough to be gifted as an engineer, be the best bloody engineer you can. Mm. And my job was to create an environment that would allow that to happen. Um, and so from that perspective, uh, you know, one of the things about stepping off from Amdocs, from OpenNet was, you know, how do you keep your relationships with people who are as close as family to you mm. uh, alive and, 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 and so on? So I, I would curate a bit of that as well as people who I would have been pally with from previous jobs or previous, you know, all the way back to school and college kind of thing. I do a fair bit of work now in things like, say, the uh, Newbridge Pass Pupils, my class reunion year, or mm. UCD is still stay in touch with the guys down there in the foundation and so on. Um, and then when I'm at home here, I drive my wife crazy because I've old computers and old VCRs and I'm trying to take them apart and put them back together again. <laughs> you know, all that kind of crazy stuff or building batteries out of old quarters and <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. So uh, I'm, I'm absolutely technically useless, but I'm very enthusiastically useless, if I can put it <laughs> like that. Well, uh, no, that's brilliant. And on this podcast, uh, you get to nominate the playout song, so uh, I don't know what it is. What, what uh, do you have in mind? Um, I, I kind of like uh, uh, take that, never forget. Really, take that. Yeah. I'm surprised. Yeah. I don't mean that. In the... No, no. In fairness, so am I. But it's it's yeah. it's one of those things where I um I was on a flight back from uh, Canada one stage, and I'd be very close with the guys up in Bell yeah. uh, and the team we had up there. But I, I had a couple of gin and tonics and I kept falling asleep and waking up. And there was a, a, you know, the internal airplane music system. 
And every time I woke up, take that, never forget. <laughs> and it stayed in my head, but it, I, I kind of do like the whole kind of don't take yourself too seriously, don't mm. get too fully around bullshit kind of vibe to it always stuck with me. Um, and it's, yeah, it's one of those things where I, uh, I, I, it allows me appeal to that younger generation too, because the other music I know before it goes way back to the early eighties, and uh, <laughs> you know nobody can relate. You know. <laughs> All right, brilliant. Now, listen, thanks very much for being on the podcast. Day 
and we hope for more. But remember this: I'm not invincible. I'm not invincible. I'm not invincible. We're only people. We're only people. 